So go ahead. I'm going to turn the light on. We're on? Yeah. Hello, everyone. Chris says we're on. So I'm going to assume that he's accurate. We have a guest host today. <laughs> no, uh, we we just got some uh, kids here, and uh, we we won't be uh, doing having any discussion afterward anyway. Not that he's going to uh, interfere. Looks like he's about to zonk out. Uh, unfortunate for Chris and Kelly tonight <laughs> because it's post nap time. Um, we are on uh, the last of three or four sessions. Certainly, these last two have been devoted to Clayton's discussion of the first chapter of Genesis, first two chapters of Genesis. And last week, he he walked us through uh, those verses and presented uh, or introduced us to um, an idea that maybe was rather foreign. Uh, to most of us. It was to me the first time I heard it. It was to Chris uh, when he heard it. But what Clayton is trying to do, as he suggested last week and as he continues this week, is to show us that the Bible and science support one another, as he has said throughout. And he has said also that if it does not support the Bible, if science does not support the Bible, or if the Bible does not uh, support science, then it's either bad theology, bad Bible, or bad science. I guess it could be both, um, but but one of those two things um, is is a miss if they don't support one another. And he says, thankfully, and rightly so, that what we find in science, and he has said this from the beginning, back at the when he talked about the creation and and um, all of the things about the universe and our Earth and those things, he said, science is supported by the Bible, and the Bible uh, is supported by science, and so that's good. We have confirmation that the source of those two things is that same entity, uh, which which is God. What he's going to do today uh, is uh, continue his discussion from last week, uh, go into a little bit more detail about some of the latter verses or those middle verses of Genesis, the first chapter, where he talks about the creation of the various um, plants and animals and, and things that took place uh, in in those uh, verses, probably starting somewhere around verse 10 and going through uh, 28, 31, somewhere in that area where he talks about, and I'll look at um, my question sheet here, plants, water creatures, fowl, beasts or mammals, and then humans, ultimately um, in verses 28 to 31. Um, and so what he's going to do is talk about the sequence of those things, the order of those things as to how they are presented and how they came one after another um, as far as timing is concerned. He didn't just wave his hand or speak uh, and everything happened at the same time. He did them um, uh, sequentially. And uh, what he says is his contention will be is that the fossil record supports that. We're going to come back and make some uh, final comments. We're not going to go our full hour today. Uh, number one, neither Chris nor I uh, feel scientifically 
proficient enough to assess uh, his arguments on science and his uh, arguments on the Bible. Um, I I tend to at least um, be a little bit more open to his interpretation of that. Chris is a little bit more closed to his interpretation of that. And so he and I are not going to get in an, in an extended argument or discussion about that because, as I said, neither of us has enough in our ammunition bucket probably uh, to do that effectively. So let's see what he has to say about the fossil sequence and the b- biblical record, record, and then we'll come back and talk briefly and summarize. Welcome to the Does God Exist video series, program number 30, The Fossil Sequence and the Biblical Record. I hope you've looked at the previous lessons dealing with evolution. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do that because I don't think this is going to make much sense if you don't know what has gone before. We have talked about the difference between the fact of evolution and the theories of evolution and naturalism. We've talked about the point that we are not in this discussion dealing with any particular theory of evolution. We're not in this discussion dealing with any denial of evolution per se. We're looking at the point that the scientific evidence and the biblical record agree. They're symbiotic. They support each other. In our last presentation, we took a look at the difference between creating and making. We pointed out what it means to say we take the Bible literally. That means looking at who wrote it, who they wrote it to, why they wrote it, and how the people of the time would have understood it. We pointed out that you cannot expect God to have given an account that would be complete and detailed for people living in the 21st century realizing that the ancient shepherds in the hills of Judea had to be able to read and understand the very same message. I tried to impress upon you how difficult that is to to write something that will make sense now and yet be accurate and useful 2,000 years from now. That's an incredible challenge. And we started through the Genesis account and looked at the first five or six verses and saw how the processes of the formation of the earth agree with all the evidence. The important concept here that the first verse is a historical verse, that a series of events is taking place, and that the sequence given in the biblical record works perfectly. And we'll emphasize that again and again as we go along here. What I'd like to do now is to just take a look at what the Bible says and what the fossil evidence says about what took place in the process of the history of the earth, the biblical record and the fossil record. Let's start out with a look at continents. You know, back in my early days, many, many years ago, scientists wondered if there wasn't some connection between North and South America and Europe and Africa. 
and the range of mountains through the ocean called the Mid-Ocean Ridge. I mean, just a casual observation like the one you're looking at right now suggests to you, you know, it looks like this might have all been connected at one time. Well, I don't think that's a debatable point anymore. We now know that the structures of the continents is well detailed, that there are zones of movement, that there are ridges and basins, and this movement is used in very practical ways for predictions of natural resources and natural disasters. We know now that the, and this is not in any stretch of our imagination to scale, but that the cross-section of the Earth shows that the ridge of mountains through the ocean called the Mid-Ocean Ridge is a result of differences in temperature. The core of the Earth is extremely hot. Outer space is extremely cold. And so convection cells are set up in the interior of the Earth that move material to the surface and then laterally along the surface and then drop back down. So where it comes to the surface, as in this cross-section, you have the Mid-Ocean Ridge. Where it goes down on the right and the left side, you will have trenches. And this has been very well documented. So the mid-ocean ridge is where material has been pushing to the side. And, and this is really not contestable. One of the things you can do is that you can actually put a measurement from satellite and you can detect that the motion is still taking place. We are moving to the left. Europe, Asia, Africa is moving to the right, away from the mid-ocean ridge. This is a measurable quantity. In places like Iceland, you can actually see this on a very practical level. Rocks found on the eastern coast of North and South America match rocks in many places found on the west side of Africa and of Europe. So at one time, we are very sure, all of the continents of the Earth were to gather together into a single landmass, which is sometimes referred to as Pangaea. And they have moved and continue to move to their present positions by these processes within the Earth. This produces mountain ranges, has a major effect upon natural resources. What's interesting is that the biblical record agrees with this in a very complete way. Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. The Hebrew word translated here indicates a bowl, a singular location, and let the dry land, singular, appear. There is a complete agreement. It's interesting to realize that a sequence of plant life on the earth is factual. You're looking at one of the oldest forms of life upon the earth. It's called a stromatolite. Now, when you go back to the Genesis account, you'll notice that three classifications of plants are given. Deshe. The Hebrew deshe is translated grass in most translations of the Bible. That's not the grass you mow with your lawnmower. That's the Hebrew word kachur. Deshe literally means tender grass. Tender grass. The second classification is aseeb. The word aseeb in many lexicons will be translated naked seed. The gymnosperms, seeds that are spore-bearing plants. And then the third classification, it order, is the flowering tree whose seed is within itself. The angiosperms. What does the fossil record show? The earliest known plants are the stromatolites. Fossilized algae, like the algae you might see in a farm pond in the Midwest in August. The next to the oldest thing we see are the spore-bearing plants. It fits the word seed perfectly. Horsetail, your conifers. And the most recent form of plants, 
very much in terms of the things that we see today, are dogwoods, apple trees, the angiosperms, the flowering trees. Now, the thing I want to emphasize here is that there's a sequence given. We're not talking about that these things all appeared instantaneously in the fossil record or in the biblical record. The sequence is what is given. The key word in this chart is sequence. The events that are taking place are given in a certain order. There's no time issue involved. It is given in a certain order. And what's interesting is that this process is something that, that we all know. My brothers and I inherited from our father a camp in Canada that's on a lake in the Canadian Quetico area. And right after we got it, there was a terrible forest fire. I mean, it was really, really hot. It burned everything. I mean, just scorched it. All that was left was bare rock. The next summer, we went back and look what's growing. This fits the concept of Deshaies. Lichen, algae, very primitive forms of plants. A couple of years later, we came back and look what's growing. A seed, horsetail, your conifers. I was up there just recently, and what we found was that flowering trees are beginning to take hold. There are birches, there are aspens, there are scrub oaks. Now, you botany students recognize what's going on here. This is called succession. There was a certain sequence, a certain ordering of plants that take place. The sequence is exactly what the biblical record shows. In the sequence, the biblical record is 100% accurate. What's the first animal life to occur upon the earth? Genesis 1.20, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving or swarming creature. This word moving or swarming is a generic word. It's like if I say to you, look at all the waterfowl. Well, you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about waterfowl. It could be ducks or geese or swans or almost anything. It's a very wide term. The indication seems to be that a wide variety of ocean-going creatures appear on the scene. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what the fossil record shows. Every conceivable ancient fossil is a marine fossil. And incidentally, one of the things that's kind of interesting here is that in this process, we don't see a particular classification problem. Have you heard anybody say, oh, well, life started out with protozoans, and after a long period of time, you have the periphera, the sponges, and then you get cylindrata, the corals, and then you get, you know, and then eventually they end up, and then you have chordates, backbone animals. Interestingly enough, there were backbone animals in the beginning. There are some very primitive animals that are chordates. The acorn worm, for example, the lancelet, these are chordates. The graptolite is an index fossil for the Cambrian period. That's the period when life began upon the earth. And the classification of the graptolite is that it's a chordate. So the, the, the concept that we have, this gradual sequence in life forms, is not what the fossil record shows, and the biblical record shows this clearly. It also tells us when the first warm-blooded creature occurred upon the earth. Let the winged fowl become abundant in the open firmament of the heaven. What does the fossil record show? Well, this is an area of great change and great controversy right now. Let me, let me take an older fossil that is probably safer than some of the others. This is one of the first fossils found of an ancient warm-blooded creature. 
And you say, well, what is it? Well, it's a fossilized bird. It's called an Archaeopteryx. Now, some of you may be saying to yourself, well, why don't you use Protoavis, or why don't you use Confusosaurus, or one of the other uh, more recent birds? Well, the interesting thing is that there's been a lot of faked fossils and a lot of misrepresentations, and at the time we're making this video, there's still some controversy about that, so I'm trying to be safe. The point would be better made if those fossils were found to be valid, which I suspect they are. They are more complex than Archaeopteryx, but they are older. So that would make my case better. The point is that all reconstructions of the Archaeopteryx and all commercial materials indicates it's a fossil bird. And somebody will say, well, it didn't have a sternum, so it couldn't fly. Bats don't have sternums. Do bats fly? You don't determine flight on the basis of a sternum. What you do find is the articulation of feathers, not just made to sieve insects out of the world, but to actually overlap and provide flight capabilities. And so pictures like this, whether they were gliders or, or accurate flyers is sort of beside the point. The fact is that the fossil record supports the idea that Archaeopteryx and some of these other birds, which may have been even earlier than Archaeopteryx, were the first warm-blooded creatures to appear upon the Earth. Now somebody says, well, what about the, the dinosaur bird thing? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. The important thing to understand here is that reconstructions like this are seen in modern birds. We have birds today with wing hooks. We have birds today with serrated beaks. The hoaxum in South America is a good example of some of the odd characteristics that you can have with some of the birds. The first walking birds were not flyers, but they came along much later. The giant birds of Madagascar, walking birds stood enormously tall, were incredible carnivores, but they came long after the flying birds. The sequence works perfectly. So what about the dinosaurs? Where do we fit the dinosaurs into this discussion? Well, there's an important hermeneutic principle that I'd like to bring to your attention here. Hermeneutics is how we understand words in the Bible. And my suggestion to you is that the most reasonable hermeneutic, the one that I'm attempting to follow, is that words in the Bible mean the same thing unless there is some specific statement or reason indicating the word is being used differently. Now, let me, let me take a, one I don't think we'll get much controversy about. <laughs> Let's talk about the word baptizo. The word baptizo in the Greek language means to immerse. Nobody questions this. What people do say is, well, you know, I don't think that it's kind of messy. I don't, I don't think I want to do it that way. But nobody questions whether the word baptizo means to immerse. And in my own personal persuasion, if we're going to be consistent with the language, we'll do what the word implies. So I believe that immersion is really what God intended for us to use. And I'm not suggesting that if you decide, well, I, I think I'm going to beg off on that, that one. That's between you and God. My point is, this is the hermeneutic. So I have the word behemoth, where the word behemoth in the Hebrew language is used in a very specific reference. And this little chart will show you what we're trying to do here. What I've done in this chart is to indicate the English animal, on the left-hand side, the verses where it's used, what the Hebrew word that is used, and what the lexicon says the word means. And finally, how many times the word is used that way. 
So you can see as you look down through there that there are a number of Hebrew words that have rather specific meanings. Now let's come back to Bahama. The word Bahama is used in verses 24, 25, and 26. What does it refer to? Does it refer to a Tyrannosaurus rex? The word is used 51 times in the Bible. 48 of those times it means cow. The other three times are in verses 24, 25, and 26. What does it mean in 24, 25, and 26 if it meant cattle or cow in the other 48 uses? My suggestion is it means cow. The word is an ungulate, something you could milk. And my one-liner here is, <laughs> I'd love to see you milk a Tyrannosaurus rex. That's not a consistent use. It's not a consistent hermeneutic. And it's important as you look through the sequence of the biblical record to realize that the animals that are given are given in very consistent form. How about the word creeping thing, remise, that is used in verses 24, 25, and 26? Well, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, the Jews are told to eat remise. Now, I don't know, know, know about you, but to me, a creeping thing is something that is creepy. We're talking worms, we're talking something, slugs, something of that type. That's not what the word meant in the ancient Hebrew. It was an animal that was a clean animal. We're talking sheep. We're talking an animal that could be used for food. What's my bottom line here? My bottom line is dinosaurs are not in the biblical record. I've already talked to you about the fact that you do not expect God to give us a complete account. How would the ancient people in the hills of Judea at the time of Moses have understood a Tyrannosaurus rex? That's not the purpose of the biblical record. So we don't find dinosaurs in the Bible. I don't think we expect to find dinosaurs in the Bible. By the way, I just mentioned to you that one of the things we have available in our program and available on our website is a little booklet which is called God's Revelation and His Rocks and His Word. It has these charts in it. You're welcome to copy the thing off of the website, off the DoesGodExist.org website. It has the charts. It has the explanations in it. Let me anticipate an argument. Somebody says, well, now, wait a minute. Over here in Job, the 40th chapter in verse 15, it talks about Bahama. Isn't that a dinosaur? It's got a tail like a cedar. It's a very big, ferocious animal. Well, once again... This word is an enlarged form of the word behemoth used in Genesis 1, verses 24 and 25. And that's a word that we've already indicated is something they could eat. Is there an animal that we know of in the fossil record or from early records of man that fits this? The answer is, yeah, there, there's an animal called the giant ground sloth, which fits this exactly. It was a carnivore. It had a tail like a cedar. These are pictures that have occurred in scientific journals, but you can go to the Museum of Natural History in Chicago, Illinois, and you can see the fossil remains of this giant animal and the tail that's like a cedar and the incredible strength that this animal must have had it, and a brain the size of a walnut, so not a trainable animal. I suggest to you this very well could be what was being described. How about the word Leviathan? Well, in Psalms 104.26, we see a description of Leviathan, and we have also seen it extant in Jewish literature. It refers to a creature of the deep ocean. That's not a dinosaur. I come back to my original statement. The Bible is giving us a complete account of man and his domesticated animals. 
It is not telling us about platypuses. It is not telling us about penguins. It is not telling us about dinosaurs. But in every checkable detail, the biblical record checks. The Genesis sequence is perfect. It isn't dated. You cannot try to establish a particular fit in terms of the fossil record indicators. The Bible is not concerned about time. And there is no way you can make that kind of correlation, but the sequence is perfect. And what's important here to understand is that this agreement, which is connected with the Bible, indicates the complete agreement of the scientific evidence and the biblical record. Does this same kind of agreement occur when we look at various naturalistic models of life? Years ago, there was a tree in the Natural History Museum in Chicago that I always thought was kind of interesting and enjoyed having my students look at. It's called the Tree of Life. You'll notice at the bottom it has the one-celled organisms and in the upper left-hand corner it has man. Is this a good model of what the history of the earth has been on a purely naturalistic standpoint? One of the interesting things here is that there's an animal called the trilobite that is in this chart. This is a picture of the trilobite. The trilobite is an index fossil for the Cambrian period. What that means is that it is a widely distributed, easily recognized fossil for the period when life began upon the earth. So it is one of the first forms of life to occur upon the earth. If this tree is the tree of life, and if the trilobite were to be put on the tree, where should you put it? And I suggest to you the answer is it should be at the bottom of the tree. It's one of the oldest animals. But if you'll notice, the trilobite is not located at the bottom of the tree. If you look around for a while, you'll find it on the upper right side. Why is the trilobite in the upper right side? Well, the problem is the trilobite was too complex to put it at the bottom of the tree. And if the tree represents the oldest and simplest forms at the bottom and the most modern and the most advanced at the top, then you've got a dilemma about where you're going to put the trilobite. So, Consequently, it was stuck at the top because of the fact that it is highly complex, even though its age does not fit the model. There were obvious complications with this particular model. The concept of links becomes an issue. How many links should you have in a tree like this? And the answer, of course, is thousands. There ought to be lots of evolutionary dead ends, trials and errors that don't work. And some of those trials and errors become quite interesting. What would you have between a cold-blooded animal and a warm-blooded animal? And to be facetious, somebody could say, well, how about a lukewarm-blooded animal? <laughs> but you, the point is that you have animals that are classified as the therapsids, the mammal-like reptiles. And here's an example. This is from the Smithsonian. It's an animal called the Trinaxodon. And this is supposed to be, at least at the time I took the picture, one of the best fossils ever found. There's a side view. Here's a top view. What does it look like? I think most people will say, well, it looks like an alligator. Yeah, there's two bones, one in the ear, inner ear and one in the lower jaw that would not fit the modern American alligator very well. But the fact of the matter is, there's very little about this animal that would make it be called in between. Now, all of these problems have led to a different concept. A concept which was originally promoted as a forest of evolution concept. And it was presented by people like Kirkut, who was the curator of the museum in West Germany, 
who said maybe instead of talking about a single tree of evolution, we should be talking about a forest of evolution. John Bonner at Yale said something to the effect of, well, you know, life may have started in many different places and that the changes that have occurred have occurred within many trees in the forest of evolution. And in recent years, there have been many other statements to that effect. Cladistic taxonomy has contributed enormously to this. Does this look familiar? And if you've been watching this series all the way back, I hope you recognize something here. Early in the discussion, we talked about the difference between kinds and species. And we pointed out that the biblical concept identified the fact that there were four kinds of flesh. The flesh of fish, the flesh of birds, the flesh of beasts, the flesh of man. If that is taken to be literal, what you're saying is that life started in many different places and the changes that occurred occurred within the trees of the forest of evolution. It's exactly the same model. And what's interesting about that is that in the process of looking at dinosaurs, we have some new things happening which indicate the fit even better. Were the dinosaurs birds? Were the dinosaurs reptiles? One of those would be flesh of birds, one would be flesh of fish. Maybe some of them are one, maybe some of them are the other. Is this a biblical issue? The answer is no. It's a scientific issue. We'll have to do more research. We'll have to find out whether perhaps there's a connection between the dinosaurs and the birds or between the dinosaurs and the reptiles. Or if maybe some were in one classification, the ornithopods and uh, you know, maybe, perhaps there were differences and some dinosaurs were one and some dinosaurs were the other. This is the beauty of science. Science investigates its areas. It, it changes, it adapts, it increases its models. But what we have here is an incredible agreement between what the fossil record says and what the biblical record says, even though the scientific evidence is changing, is growing, is being expanded, it is getting closer and closer and closer to the biblical record. You don't have to put your brain in park to be a Christian. You don't have to put your brain in park to believe that the Bible is the word of God. And I'm excited as I read scientific journals and see the new discoveries and see the new finds and, and notice how science is evolving, how it's changing and how its models are fitting better and better and better, what the biblical record has said all the way along. It's interesting to me that the biblical record even indicates this kind of change. You remember what God said to the serpent back in Genesis 3? From now on, you will crawl in the dust of the earth, and of the dust of the earth shall thou eat all the days of thy life. What's the indication? That there was a change in the serpent. At one time it had legs, now it does not have legs. A change, an evolutionary change. Incidentally, you can see the spurs on a primitive snake in the boa constrictor, for example, you can see them here, the vestigial structures. There have been many studies done. The glass snake, you can see the legs even through the skin when you hold the snake up to the light. This idea of the trees in the forest of evolution is now becoming part of our educational program. We're getting charts which show these concepts. Our message here again is that the sequence of the biblical account fits the evidence. There's lots of unanswered questions. There's lots of challenges. The field is dynamic and changing. We have our websites so that we can keep up with things, so that we can offer to you 
answers to questions that come about in these areas. We've tried to avoid discussions of things that would become dated very quickly. Well, we encourage you, if you have questions about the agreement, if there's some factual evidence here that needs to be updated, that you'll get in touch with us. We'll be more than happy to provide you with answers, provide you with resources, with documentation, with ways in which you can investigate and see what the evidence says. Evolution does not cause a conflict with the biblical record. Evolution understood properly, the biblical record understood properly. When we get rid of bad science and get rid of bad theology, we find science and the Bible agree. back up all right ready okay we are back um he presents um once again uh, this idea that science and the bible support one another and he i found it interesting that as a scientist he said the more and more that we discover in the way of fossils and and discover things about science it excites him he he's not worried that something's going to pop up and uh, cause a conflict because he knows God created all that and God's record in what we have is going to support what man finds out about his earth or his world or his um, universe, regardless of when he finds it or what whatever it is he finds out about it. His um, approach has been, as we said a while ago, uh, before we started the video, has been to uh, merge the biblical record, Genesis 1, with what we find in science. And today he spent more time on that fossil record and how this sequence of what we find in the fossil record overlays perfectly on the sequence of what we find in uh, the first chapter of Genesis, where he departs from most, is the notion that day means day. And that's one of the problems that I think that Chris has uh, with uh, his interpretation of Genesis 1 and how it explains the development of and the layers that we find in. Um, our our fossil record. My understanding is Clayton would say that we don't have development over time. We have creation over time. Um, or we have Azad <laughs> instead of Bara. Some sort of process. Um, some, some process over time. And um, as as we have said, uh, more than once. This is not a hill that we're going to die on or even have a battle on. Um, those who want to um, ask Clayton to provide more explanation, more evidence, I'm sure he can. As he says, he has been doing this for 40 years or so. And people a lot smarter uh, than Chris and I have surely 
asked him questions uh, about things that he says that that at least might appear to be contradicted uh, in the Bible. In 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 Clayton's mind, the two are 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 very well ma- matched and and married together. Um, what he does provide in this approach is a way for us to explain some things that otherwise we might have to say, well, I just don't know. And there may be other explanations for uh, what we find in the Bible and what we would say would be our traditional interpretation of that rather than than his approach. But in the long run, what we're going to say is um, to each his own. This is not a um, an issue that is going to determine whether or not um, someone is going to go to heaven or hell. Uh, The plan of salvation is devised for that, and it is very clear. And he's not proposing anything (laughs) concerning the plan of salvation. Uh, In fact, um, I love the fact that that Clayton is not only a believer, but um, his his beliefs are, are, um, as far as I know, pretty well right down the line of what the Bible uh, teaches. And his adherence to the Bible was something that um, that drove him away from atheism and to Christianity. So as he wraps up this section of what he has been talking about here, starting back with the creation and all of those things that he's talked about, the paranormal. I probably should have printed out a list of those things. This is the last one that I think is building the case for what he is saying. Next week, he's going to talk about, uh, I think the name of it is Why I Left Atheism, Mm -hmm. part one. And then the following week is Why I Left Atheism, part two. Not a second time. But just part two, it takes it takes two of these takes about an hour for him to work, work his way through what uh, what he did. And is if you haven't been with us, um, John Clayton was a devout and and convicted atheist at one time in his life. And he was a scientist and he set out to um, disprove the Bible through science. And as I read somewhere, or or I think it's in one of the, the questions that we had, um, he never got out of Genesis 1. Um, and Genesis 1 convinced him that there was enough corroboration between science and the Bible, that there was something to uh, this biblical record and something to the fact that uh, it had answers that he didn't have. Um, from a a um, larger view than what he was he was looking at as well. Well, he eventually obviously did get out of Genesis one, but I think Genesis one <coughs> and its corroboration of what he knew about science uh, led him to delve more deeply into the scripture to try to find other contradictions, and he simply could not do it. So uh, he will tell us more about that uh, next week and the following week. And I cannot remember uh, the titles of the remaining uh, three or four lessons after that. Um, but I, I do believe he'll probably go back and do some summarizing, at least in the, in the last, last lesson or so. So uh, we're going to end for today. 
and um, hope to see you next week. See you guys. Right. See you. Bye-bye.